Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 28. Last week, I wrapped up in Joshua 18, covering the city of Shiloh, where the Israelites set up the tent of meeting while they awaited the final allotment of territory. I also covered the places of Genoa and Endor. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up in that chapter and pressing forward. And with that, let's get started. After the three men from each tribe make it back to Shiloh, and everyone agrees on where the boundaries between the tribes should lay, Joshua casts lots to see which tribe gets what piece of land. Then, the text goes about telling us where they landed, the agreed-upon boundaries, and the cities in each place. Like I mentioned a couple of episodes ago when I kicked off in this section, I'm not covering every place and person mentioned. That would take way too long, and many are just far too obscure. Instead, I'm covering the places that make a difference, or that I find interesting. First up is the wilderness of Beth Huron, mentioned as being part of the boundary of the tribe of Benjamin. The city of Beth Huron would also become a Levitical city. As I've mentioned numerous times, the word Beth, when found in the Old Testament, and especially when in front of a place name, simply translates to house, in this case, the house of Huron. Which is interesting, as it's also said to be the wilderness of Beth Huron. I'll get to what that means in a second. This place, the city, is found throughout the Old Testament narrative, mostly as a geographic place name, which doesn't understate its importance. One such location is in 2 Chronicles 8, where we're told that King Solomon built Upper Beth Haran and Lower Beth Haran, fortified cities, with walls, gates, and bars, a city so large that it had two separate districts and was extremely well fortified. Other places of the narrative convey that it had pasture land. Later in the history, well, really throughout, it was the site of several important battles. The town was located on the vital road between Gibeon and Ajehon, and guarded the ascent to the mountain by the same name. That the mountain and the town shared the same name explains why Joshua called it a wilderness. It also tells us why there was an upper and lower. It was on the side of a mountain, a steep one at that. As for the Huron part of the name, it was likely sourced from the Egyptian Canaanite deity Huron, also mentioned in Ugaritic text. Huron was one of the places that Pharaoh Shushak I is said to have smitten, and as recorded on an inscription at the Temple of Karnak. This is thought to have occurred during the reign of King Rehoboam of Judah in the 10th century BC. On that inscription, the town was named Beit Hurun. And I bet you had never thought of that use of the word smitten. Just another version of the words smite and smote. Keep that in mind when you hear of someone being smitten with someone else. Archaeological finds from this era, meaning the Middle Bronze Age, show that the lower town was established before the upper one. Pottery pieces dating a little later, so the Late Bronze Age and after, were discovered in the lower city, 
while those in the upper part date only as far back as the Iron Age. Back in the Old Testament, in 1 Chronicles, Lower Beth Haran was said to have been built by Shirah, the daughter of Berari, the son of Ephraim. This was after the upper city had been built and occupied. Fast forward a bit, and the 4th century historian Eusebius described the twin villages of Beth Haran, while his contemporary Jerome described them as little hamlets. So, two little towns. Backing up to earlier in Joshua, when he and the Israelite army defeated the kings of the Amorites in Joshua 10, they killed a large number of them at Gibeon, and then chased them by way of the ascent of Beth Huron, likely meaning they pursued the retreating Amorites down the road that ran through the city back towards Ajehan. Later, when the Philistines opposed King Saul at Michmash, they sent a company of their men to hold the way of Beth Haran, meaning they captured and controlled the road. So it goes with vital thoroughfares. But what made this route so important? Two things, trade and its location. The trade part needs no further explanation. I've mentioned similar routes ad nauseum over the past several years. As for the location, it's a pass that ascends from the plain of Ajalon and climbs up to the city of Beth Huron at an altitude of about 1,200 feet, 366 meters. From there, the road ascends further, this time a longer ridge with valleys lying to both the north and south until it reaches Beit Ur Al Faka at an altitude of just over 2,000 feet, over 600 meters. This road would remain important through the Roman era when they paved it, with traces of the cobblestone visible even today. Backing up a bit, the Jewish people would fortify the city against an Assyrian general dispatched by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Later in the history, the Syrian general Saron was defeated in the city and on the road by Judas Maccabeus at the Battle of Beth Huron. Six years later, the Syrian Seleucid general Nicanor, who was retreating from Jerusalem, was defeated and slain by the Maccabeans. The Greek general Bacchides would later repair Beth Huron, rebuilding it with high walls and gates, and with bars, and within these gates and walls and bars, he set up a garrison. From there, they would continually attack the revolting Maccabeans. The city would remain under the control of the Romans through the period of Christ. Then, in 66 AD, it was the site of another battle of Beth Horon. It was there that the Jewish people won their first decisive victory in the First Jewish-Roman War, with the Romans being led by the general Cestius Gallus. In the modern era, sometimes shortly before World War I and early in the 20th century, it was noted that the road to Jerusalem had been rerouted, completely bypassing Beth Huron. When this happened, the city dwindled down to almost nothing. Almost a century later, and well after the establishment of the nation of Israel, a settlement named Beit Haran was formed at the site of the ancient city, and remains marginally occupied to this day. And that's it for Beth Huron. A few verses later, but still in the territory assigned to Benjamin, is a place named Enrogel. 
The context, at least in this passage, gives us little to go on. The remaining mentions in the Old Testament give a little more, mostly relaying that the place is a landmark, and likely at the bottom of a hill. Phrases such as downward toward Enrogel, as it's seen in Joshua 18. And Jonathan and Amamaz were waiting at Enrogel, found in 2 Samuel 17. These all seem to indicate that it wasn't a town or village, but instead a single spot. There are a few other mentions, but they follow this general pattern. Some think it may have previously been a Canaanite or Jebusite sacred place, at least before the Israelites arrived. The reality is that in Rogel, sometimes, especially modernly rendered as Ein Rogel, was a spring later converted to a well and located just outside of Jerusalem. This places it at the conjunction of three valleys, the Hinnom Valley, the Central Valley, and the Kidron Valley. Today, there is a modern pumping station nearby which draws water from a 125-foot, 38-meter-deep well. The well is stone-lined, though the stones may only date to the Roman era, so well after Jacob. A modern name for it is Bir Ayu which translates from Arabic to the Fountain of Job, or alternatively, Job's well. Though it may also be Joab's well, referring to King David's nephew, who was also a commander in his army. Modernly, the Bir Ayub Mosque of Silwin stands above the well, with the well covered by boards in the mosque's courtyard. More on that in a minute. This location is said to have been the only true spring close to, but not in the city of Jerusalem. Josephus argued that this was the true location of Enrogel, since it was found in the royal gardens. There is another proposed site. This place is known as Bir Ayub, and is sometimes referred to as the Well of Nehemiah. More on that in a minute, too. This location is at the junction of two valleys, the Wadi Er Rababi in Kidron. But Bir Ayub is a well, not a spring, and is likely too far from Ezawela, though it is near a large stone in a Slomian village called Zawilet. More on why it likely isn't this place in a minute, too. But first, a little background. Not only was Enrogel listed as part of the boundary between Benjamin and Judah, but it would later serve as a hiding spot for a couple of David's spies, namely Jonathan and Amamez. This was when David's son Absalom attempted a coup against his father. The text explains that the two spies decided to stay at the spring because they were trying to avoid being seen in Jerusalem. Instead, and this makes sense since they were spies, a woman servant would relate information to them and they would in turn get the reports to King David, who was secure, at least as secure as he could be, east of the Jordan River. But eventually, a young boy saw them, and they had to flee themselves, in their case to the village of Bahurim. The second proposed location of the spring does not work well with this story, as this location is in full view of the city. Later, and when David was still king, but in a different city, and apparently dying, Solomon's half-brother, Adonijah, made a move for the throne, 
I'll let the text tell the broader story. Adonijah, son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. He prepared for himself chariots and horsemen, and fifty men to run before him. He was a very handsome man, and he was born next, after Absalom. He conferred with Joab and with the priest Abiathar, and they supported Adonijah. But the priest Zadok and Benaiah, along with the prophet Nathan among others, and David's warriors, did not side with Adonijah. Next, he sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fatted cattle by the stone at Zoheleth, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah to partake in this sacrificial feast. The stone named in the story lines up closely with the second proposed location. Back in the story, he did not invite the prophet Nathan or Benaiah, the warriors, or his brother Solomon. Essentially, those who didn't support him weren't invited to the coronation party. The prophet Nathan relayed Ajana's plans to Solomon's mother Bathsheba. Bathsheba and Nathan then traveled to see David to let him know how his son was trying to take the throne. David then named Solomon as his successor. Meanwhile, Adonijah is feasting at Enrogel when they learned what has happened. Naturally, Adonijah is fearful that his brother, the now king, or soon-to-be king Solomon, will have him executed. Instead, Solomon lets him live, one of his first acts in his new role. Later, in Nehemiah 2, Enrogel may be the same place that the prophet called the dragon's well or the serpent's well. This could also be the second site I mentioned earlier. At some point, it was renamed Job's Well. This is due to a story in the Islamic Quran where Job was considered a prophet. In that book, he struck the ground with his foot and a well sprang forth. As for where it's found today, on top of the spring or well stands the modern Bir Ayyub Mosque in Silwin, a neighborhood in Jerusalem. The well is about a third of a mile, 600 meters to the south of the Pool of Siloam. Only a stone's throw away is the Mount of Olives, Temple Mount, and the Garden of Gethsemane, likely one of the most historic square miles on the face of the globe, especially concerning the world's three major religions. And that's it for Enrogel. At the end of Joshua 18 is a list of cities occupied by the Benjaminites after they took the territory assigned to them, 12 places in total. And I'll avoid reciting the list. Embedded in here is one place worth covering, Ramah. The name, in ancient Hebrew, means height, giving away its most prominent geographic attribute. It was located near Gibeon in Mizpah to the west, Gibeah to the south, and Geba to the east. This places it at the modern city of Aram, about five miles, eight kilometers north of Jerusalem. The mention in Joshua is the first in the text, with many others following, most in the writings of the prophet Samuel. It was mentioned again in Judges, where the judge and prophetess Deborah would render her judgment all while sitting under a palm tree bearing her name. At least where she sat was close to Ramah, said to be on the road between the city and Bethel. The city was likely the birthplace of Samuel, 
And I say likely because the text uses a slightly different name. 1 Samuel 1 in the New Revised Standard reads, There was a certain man of Ramathaim, a Zephite, which is the exact same wording as the NIV. The King James reads, Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zapho, with the last word being a very long single word. To add to the confusion, they all say that this man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and Ramah was in Benjamin, though it could be that his father was from Ephraim. Whichever you go with, the general consensus is Ramathaim is the same as Ramah. Later, the chapter clarifies the town as the one I'm covering. A few sentences after that, Samuel is born there. He would live there as an adult when the elders of Israel came to him, asking that he anoint a king over the land. Of course, that king would be Saul. After this, and after Israel was split into various kingdoms, King Baasha of the northern kingdom fortified the city to control access to Jerusalem. Asa, the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, allied with the Syrians. When Baasha heard about this, he stopped building at Ramah and lived at Terzah. Then King Asa made a proclamation to all Judah. None was exempt. They carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber. With them, King Asa built up the other cities of Judah. So, Ramah was stripped bare. Later, when the Babylonians led by Nebuchadnezzar attacked and defeated the Israelites, those taken captive were assembled at Ramah before being moved to Babylon, as recorded in Jeremiah. Jeremiah also wrote of a voice heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. This would come into play in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah wrote that Rachel was weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children, because they are no more. As for this reference to Rachel, it's there because she was the mother to three tribes, namely Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. Actually, to be pedantic, she was the mother to Joseph and Benjamin, and grandmother to Ephraim and Manasseh. And the weeping was because these tribes had been taken to their Babylonian captivity. As for the Ramah reference, it was in the territory of Benjamin. Unlike many of the places in this part of the Old Testament, Ramah was mentioned in the New. In Matthew 2, in the narrative about Herod's slaughter, Matthew wrote, When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem, who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. After this, Matthew quotes the passage from Jeremiah about Rachel's weeping I just covered, and that's Ramah and Joshua 18. Next up is Mount Tabor. But before I get to that place, I need to do a little table setting. Joshua 19 begins with the territory of Simeon, which presents no new and interesting places to cover. After this is the territory allotted to Zebulun, with the boundary set to go in the other direction, eastward, towards the sunrise, toward the boundary of Kaisloeth Tabor. And this Kaisloeth Tabor was a city about three miles, five kilometers from Mount Tabor.
Therefore, the name. There's really nothing of note about this Kaisloth Tabor, except that it does give me the opportunity to cover the mountain referenced in its name. Located in the region of Lower Galilee, on the east side of the Jezreel Valley, about 11 miles, 18 kilometers west of the Sea of Galilee, the peak is shaped like a half-sphere and stands out from the generally flat land surrounding it. Overall, it's nearly 1,900 feet, 575 meters above sea level. You'd think such an isolated peak would be due to it being a volcano, but it's not. It's just an isolated hill, a feature known as a Monadnock, like Devil's Tower in Wyoming or Stone Mountain in Atlanta. Though Devil's Tower is the result of a volcano, but Stone Mountain is not. Add Monanach to your vocabulary. This mention in Joshua is the first in the text, where it was said to be on the border of three tribes, obviously Zebulun, but also Issachar and Naphtali. Its height and position gave it strategic value in the control of the road that ran north to south through Galilee and to Damascus, and also the road that ran east to west through the Jezreel Valley an important trading junction. It was on the slopes of Tabor that Barak led the Israelite army to victory over the Hazarites. Later, in the Second Temple period, so from 516 BC to 70 AD, on its peak there was the custom to light beacons in order to inform the northern villages of Jewish holy days in the beginning of new months, an ancient public calendar. In 55 BC, when the Hasmoneans were rebelling against the Romans, Alexander of Judea and his army of some 30,000 Judeans were defeated at Mount Tabor. Records show that up to 10,000 Jewish fighters were killed in the battle, with Alexander being forced to flee, probably to Syria. About a century later, in 66 AD, during the First Jewish-Roman War, Galilean Jews entrenched on the mountain. This was while they were under the command of Yosef ben Matatiahu. While that name may not sound familiar, he would later be known as Josephus Flavius, commonly shortened to Josephus. Why he wasn't executed and how he became the still-referenced historian, I'll get to some point in the future. He would record that Mount Tabor, which he called Itoporium, was one of the 19 sites fortified by the rebels in Galilee under his orders. He also recorded in his book, The Wars of the Jews, that Roman general Vespasian sent an army of 600 riders to fight the rebels, but the cavalry found the slopes too steep and commanded the rebels walk down to the Romans. A group of Jewish rebels descended under the guise of negotiating a peace agreement, but instead they attacked the Romans. The Romans initially retreated, but while in the valley, they doubled back towards the mountain, attacked the Jewish rebels, killing many of them, and blocked the retreat of the remaining rebels so they couldn't flee back up the mountain. After this, many of the Jewish rebels left Mount Tabor and returned to Jerusalem. Those that did not leave sheltered in the fortress on the mountain and surrendered after running out of water. With that, the Romans captured Mount Tabor. Shortly after this, the second temple was destroyed, and the Jews resettled on Tabor. 
After the Christians and Byzantines, the Muslims would take control of the region. Then along came the Crusaders, and while they battled the Muslims over a few hundred years, control of the mountain would change hands several times. The Muslims gave way to the Ottomans, who, in 1799, briefly fought with Napoleon for control of the slopes. 3,000 French soldiers against 35,000 Ottomans. Surprisingly, the French won, but would eventually head home anyway. A little over a century later, and at the end of World War I, Tabor would become part of the British Mandatory Palestine. After the formation of the Nation of Israel and the 1948 Arab-Israeli War, the mountain became part of Israel. In the Christian tradition, and this is yet another reason I'm covering the mountain, Mount Tabor is a potential site for the transfiguration of Jesus, though the text of the New Testament, in the several places the event is recorded, doesn't name Tabor, instead simply saying it occurred on a high mountain which could have also been Mount Hermon, one of the Horns of Hattin, or any of the other mountains in the greater Galilee region. The identification of Tabor as location dates to the 3rd century. The next century, Jerome would make the same claim. After this claim, it became a Christian pilgrimage site. About the same time, a cave on the mountain was proposed as the place where Abraham met the king of Salem, as recorded in Genesis 14. Because Tabor could have been the location of the Transfiguration, on its summit are two Christian monasteries, one Greek Orthodox and the other Roman Catholic. Up until the Ottoman Empire, the mountain was covered in trees, but while the Ottomans were in control, most of the trees were axed and converted to charcoal. I couldn't find what this charcoal was used for, though I suspect it was metal production, likely steel or something related. Since the creation of the nation of Israel, a movement has been afoot to reforest it. What trees are there provide cover for various wolves and jackals, among other mammals, birds, and reptiles. And the caves on the mountains are home to many bats. Which provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue with the history of the people, places, and things found in Joshua. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast is three separate words. Once there... Be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.